my Australian parents used to tell me that um, when they came to Korea to get me, they visited, they first just visited the orphanage and that was supposed to be just, you know, a, a meeting and then they were supposed to come back another day to actually take me. And they said that it went really well that I um, kind of clinged onto them and so they actually had to take me on the first day, um, which wasn't planned. And I have mixed feelings about hearing that story. Um, I'm not sure that um, I, I wouldn't know because I'm not a parent, but like I wonder why a young child meeting strangers would be so desperate to, you know, grasp onto them and, and leave with them, leave with strangers. I, I think it's, I find it, um, a bit disturbing. I, I don't fully understand it. Um, and, it, you know, there was this strange dissonance because when my parents used to tell me that story, um, you know, particularly my mum, for her it was like this lovely story of, um, you know, this, this great connection on the first meeting. I, I don't know, but perhaps it was, but I, I think it's, it's probably more complex than that. So thanks so much for being here. I mean, I look forward to this conversation for a long time. So Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. And I pronounced your last name correct, right? Maury? Yeah, that, that's it. It's, uh, it's an old English name. Nice. <laughs> so Glenn was born in Seoul. He was adopted at the age of six months to the U.S. And he and his wife, Julie, have created this incredible documentary called The Side by Side Project. You can find it on sidebysideproject.com. It documents 100 former South Korean orphans adopted in Western countries or aged out of Korean orphanages. And I reached out to Glenn after I saw the documentary on the New York Times where it was picked up for this collaboration. And since then, it's been featured in a lot of places, including NPR. And yeah, I was up late last night watching uh, some of the stories to prepare for this interview. And oh, that's great. Yeah, it's incredibly moving, well-made. Um, I think everybody should check it out, even if you're not an, not Korean or an adoptee. Um, it'll make you think a lot about what it means to belong and to be rejected and as with all things in this podcast, um, the relationship between like historical circumstances and dealing with them on a personal level. So definitely check it out. And before we start, sorry for my voice, for listeners who think my voice sounds different, just a little bit sick today. So but we're going <laughs> to power through it. So first question uh, that I had for you was before, like even before the project, the side by side project, when did you kind of start becoming interested in inner country adoption and the history and all of that? Well, I was adopted in 1960. So uh, it was a long time ago. And uh, in fact, I just turned 60 years old just about a week ago. And when I was in my early 40s, something clicked inside my mind where I really wanted to begin to do something that I'd never, ever done 
done, which was to live in acknowledgement and live in openness with regard to my personal origin story, the fact that I'm adopted, the fact that I'm Asian American, Korean American. Um, all of those topics had been, as far as I was concerned, pretty off limits up till that point. And I decided that I really wanted to to come to grips with with those issues. I wanted to, to live a, a whole life when it came to my identity and, and the way that I thought about myself, uh, the way that I dealt with other people. And so uh, at that point, I began to reach out to other Korean adoptees. I went to various conferences and gatherings of Korean adoptees all across the U.S. as well as uh, in Korea. And uh, it really transformed my life. Uh, in fact, I think that that even though that sounds like, uh, you know, probably some sort of hyperbole, it, it really was for me. It was transformative. Uh, I remember the way that I felt walking up to uh, the registration desk the first time I went to one of these events and, and the way that I was received at that event, the way that I was positively affirmed for the very things that I had struggled with over the course of my entire life. It was amazing. And so, you know, going uh, through all of those experiences and being changed by those, you know, I, I, I know how, how amazing it is and how transformative it can be to be a Korean adoptee who's never met other adoptees to suddenly uh, meet not just dozens, but hundreds of other adoptees from all over the world to hear their stories, to understand their experiences, to be able to talk about those experiences that you have in common. And uh, that's where I became interested really in in uh, making a documentary project about all of this. When you said that you had this realization that you wanted to live like a whole life to come to kind of terms with your identity, was that, just to go a little bit more into that, was there like a single moment or was it just kind of a gradual realization and at some point you were like, I should go figure this out? For me, on my end, it was just... You know, I graduated college and then I got a scholarship to go uh, teach English in Korea. It was just kind of like, I should go to Korea because, you know, that's where I'm from, I guess. Um, and then it just kind of happened by accident. Like, I was not at all prepared for the kind of identity soul searching. But I was wondering, that's not true for all of my peers. So I was just wondering, was it a single, like a single moment or was it just a gradual decision? Well, it, it actually was a probably a series of, of events in my life. But I think the experience that started it all off was the very first time that I came face to face with another Asian American who spoke of her immigration experience and described that experience in the middle of Iowa from the Philippines and what that was like. And her description of those experiences resonated so clearly with me. They were in so many ways my experience, even though I wasn't, you know, I didn't have memories of, of my mother country and I didn't have memories of a Korean family or anything like that. The the alienation and assimilation process that I went through here in the U.S. was so exactly the same as hers that I really knew that I had to, to come to grips with that somehow. Mm -hmm. And when you reached out to the other adoptees, like when you decided to do that, how did you do that? <laughs> 
Because, I mean, now it's obvious, right? Like, I can go to the side-by-side project, for example, and I could find a whole bunch of adoptees. But um, from, like, nothing, how did you kind of start? I guess this is probably before, like, a lot of social media, too, right? So No, actually, it wasn't. Uh, It was was in 2013 that we started this. Uh, So about seven years ago. And, yeah, uh, there's a thriving subculture of Korean adoptees throughout the world, uh, or at least those countries where a lot of Koreans were adopted too. And that thriving subculture includes very, very large and active face groups, uh, by no means representing uh, the majority of the universe of Korean adoptees, but representing a lot of them. And so that's what really facilitated our ability to sort of let people know that we were working on this, uh, let them know what our approach to to the storytelling was going to be, and to invite them to take part part in that and to share their own stories and get their own stories out into the world. Uh, and, and we did that. And and within a very, very short period of time, we had hundreds and hundreds of hand raisers from all over the world who wanted to take part in this project, people who wanted to tell their stories. And I was quite taken aback by that. Uh, it was The numbers were far larger than anything I would have ever expected, but it was really quite overwhelming. And from all corners of all of the major adopting countries. In terms of your background with storytelling and I guess your ideas behind that, uh, I was just a little bit curious. I mean, we could talk a little bit more about it later too, but just a little bit curious about how you approached that. Like, what kind of direction were you thinking in terms of um, pursuing the project? And also, I guess on the project website, you talk a little bit about how you wanted every story to have like the same background. It's just the person that changes, like the background lighting, everything is the same. So I was just wondering kind of the behind the scenes thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I think at a very, very fundamental level, I'm a, I am was heavily, heavily uh, impacted by some statements made by the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie uh, when she talks about the danger of the single story. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Now, that's not to say that single stories can't be incredibly moving and incredibly educational and, and incredibly uh, enlightening. But at the same time, a single story is just that. And I felt like if we were going to create a project that somehow was going to try to characterize 60 plus years of intercountry adoption out of South Korea to all of these various adoptive countries and to all of these really different kinds of families, then we weren't going to be able to do that with one or two or five or 10 or 20 stories. It was going to take a lot of stories to do that. We didn't know how many. Uh, And in fact, we did not set out on this project with the idea of creating 100 stories, um, we could have created 500. We could have created 1,000 very, very easily, but we had to stop somewhere. Uh, And I think that the 100 number just sort of stuck in my mind as being a reasonable place to to stop. Uh, But it was was just that. It was just a way to stop. Mm -hmm. And was there a culling process for that? Like, not culling, but I guess like editing process? Like, how did you kind of decide which, or did you just stop at 100 naturally? Or was it like, I had, you know, 200 and I just chose? was 100, like curating wise? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, I wanted to personally, uh, and and for my, my production partner and wife as well, Julie, we wanted to be as low impact on the project as possible. So we didn't want to be the ones that, that somehow cherry picked certain kinds of stories, etc. And so what we did is we interviewed uh, by phone 
everyone who was interested. I, I probably conducted 500 telephone interviews or email interviews with people just to make sure that they knew what we were doing and that they were opening or going into the process with uh, with open eyes, but not to cherry pick them. Uh, and, and in fact, what we ended up doing was we ended up making a list of cities based on the number of interviews we could film in each city, thereby being very production efficient. And we chose those cities and we said to everyone in those cities that that if you want to be filmed we will film you that we will not we, we will film as long as it takes to film as many people as we can in those cities and that's exactly what we did we also didn't cut anyone from the project um, no one ended up on the cutting room floor we filmed 100 interviews and that's the number of interviews that are in the project and so it was very very important to me that we not be choosers when it came to uh, the selection of the stories in this project. I think, yeah, I don't want to get too ahead of myself in terms of the questions that I had planned, but the idea of choice, I think, is really interesting also in this context. We'll get to that in a little bit, but just in terms of like family adoption, like what choice do we have? Who has the mm -hmm. choice and the power involved there? So anyway, we'll get into that later. But before that, I was just going to ask in terms of the events that you went to and I guess reception from, you know, like emails and whatever other correspondence, did you get a lot of reception from non-Korean American non-Korean adoptees or was it mostly Korean? adoptees and yeah just kind of like the reception I guess well the project started going out into the world in May of 2018 that's when we released the website which has all 100 interviews virtually unedited on it uh, and then a few months later we began screening various versions of, uh, of the short film as well and then last year we we exhibited a uh, video art installation adaptation of the project uh, in both Seoul and the US and so we've been in front of a lot of different kinds of audiences and we've been in front of a lot of people you know when we released our short film to the New York Times we were a full week on their top 10 pages list and we've also since received hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views on their YouTube channel and so we have gotten a tremendous amount of feedback from audiences all over the world and all kinds of different audiences. So Korean adoptees, of course, have responded by saying that they feel like the project uh, fairly and emotionally connects with their experiences in the world. But also with, you know, the Korean adoptions were just the start. Korea set the model for intercountry adoption, and there have been a million intercountry adoptions since the 50s throughout the world. World, uh, and only, you know, some 200,000 of those are from Korea. And so we've heard from a lot of intercountry adoptees from other sending countries, and they also confirmed that many of the experiences described in these stories are the kinds of experiences they've had. But we've also heard from a lot of adoptive families, a lot of adoptive parents, a lot of adoption organizations, agencies, orphanages, etc., as well as Korean Americans and Korean nationals. And so it's it's fairly remarkable in my mind that so many people beyond Korean adoptees have been 
impacted and and indeed I think moved by these stories. Uh, when we released this project, I had no idea if anybody beyond Korean adoptees would ever be interested in this, uh, and that's been the furthest thing from from true. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I have two questions. I guess these can be the same questions. So the first one is because you said that you weren't you know so aware of um, your identity going into this. Like it was a way to figure things out for yourself. So like how did you kind of grow throughout the process, or how did you kind of reflect and then similarly how did some of the people who were interviewed like the interviewees how did they react to or did they have any response to like just how people received their story after it was out or did they just kind of after it was out like it's not their concern just I wanted to tell my story in. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I think to really respond to, you know, this question, this very complex question that you've asked, I, yeah. I, I kind of think we need to we need to talk about some fundamental issues about adoption narrative. And because I think that the way that most people understand adoption or intercountry adoption is that there is a family that wants a child. There's a child that has no family and that this is a perfect match. And while Many times that is true, even though sometimes it does not end up being a perfect match, uh, but many times it is true. But the thing is, is that there is this unspoken duality to all adoptions, not just intercountry adoptions, but all adoptions that really is only spoken to by adoptees. And so as long as you have not been exposed to adult adoptee voices, you may not even be aware of this sort of complexity or duality of the adoption experience that adult adoptees can very, very easily describe, even if it's really emotional and traumatic and so forth. But it's certainly not beyond description for them. So the truth is, is that adoption or or, or the adoptee's life does not start with their adoption. And that even if they have an adoptive family who loves them and, and they become a very integral part of that family, there was another family and there was a different kind of origin and there was a separation from that family. And adult adoptees almost universally seem to, to have thoughts about that and to, and to all the way to inclu- and, and including a desire to search for that family or meet that family or uh, even have some sort of relationship with that family, the original family. And so there just is a complex duality to all of this that that I think doesn't really occur to people who who have not had adoption as part of their life. And I think that this wasn't apparent to me until I started screening the film to all kinds of different audiences. And, and it was very, very clear from the discussions that followed those screenings that this duality was news to, to the vast majority of people. Wait, so could you just to clarify for the duality, do you mean the fact that there are two families involved, that it's not just the family that an adoptee is adopted into? Or... Yeah, well, the duality exists, I think, in real simple terms. One is that there there was a family of origin, uh, and there is an adoptive family. Both families are important. The existence of an adoptive family does not eradicate the existence of a family of origin. But the duality becomes, I think, even more difficult when you think about what happened with that family of origin. Because whatever reason that the adoptee was separated from that family, the likelihood of that being 
a positive event is not high, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was war or geopolitical crisis, whether it was death, uh, neglect, abuse, poverty, shaming, bias, uh, bigotry, you know, you name it. Somehow my own abandonment, my own abandonment as a two-week-old baby into, into the streets of Seoul in 1960, that obviously was not a good thing, despite the fact that it culminated in me being adopted into a very, very safe and secure home in the U.S., despite the fact that I was loved, despite the fact that, that I'm healthy and that I had a great education and I had a good job and, and, and I've lived a, a very productive life. It does not eradicate the issues of those origins. And so all adult adoptees, or I should not, I, I don't want to, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, but many of the adoptees, particularly the ones that have spoken to us through the side-by-side project, describe this duality, these conflicting feelings in very explicit terms. Do you have some examples of those terms that you kind of remember off the top of your head in terms of like how they describe that? Sure. Um, You know, I recall very distinctly um, a young woman who was an adoptee to uh, Australia, actually Tasmania, uh, who has lived Uh, an extraordinarily productive and highly privileged life, I I guess you could call it, up till now, up to the present. And yet she was no less driven, I think, to go back to Korea to find the truth of her origin, to dig through the fabrications in her paperwork, to uncover a family that that had been sort of kept in, made difficult for her to discover, I should say, and then to meet that family and to find out the kinds of stories that she was told about a father dying in a motorcycle accident and so forth weren't even remotely relevant or part of her actual story and that indeed she was relinquished to an orphanage at three years old, old enough certainly to be conscious of what had happened, uh, what was going on. Imagine how frightening it would be for a three-year-old to be dropped off in an orphanage. And from there, she was adopted to Australia. So to me, that's that's a very real, very explicit example of duality this adoptee faces and lives with and carries with her throughout her life. I think, I'm not sure if, I mean, there are lots of uh, adoptees, um, Australian adoptees, so I'm not sure if we watched the same. Well, I watched a similar video, but so this video that I watched, she talks about how her adopted like Australian mom tells her a story about how she like when you first saw me at the orphanage um, you like ran to me and like clung to me and it was like a very you know happy thing Um, and then later she's recounting that story you probably remember this too but she I do yeah she recounts the story just for those who haven't watched it recounts the story and then says wait a minute like as an adult that doesn't really make sense to me like why would a child you know suddenly cling to a stranger like it just seems like a fake happy story made up Um, and that goes off of another story in terms of like oh your parents died and this accident or something like yeah a yeah. lot of kind of kind of common false narratives are kind of being thrown around and then she kind of realized like oh these can't all be true so i was just wondering like is well, that common tru- or yeah I, truth i think is one aspect that has to be examined you know by an adoptee in their adulthood but the other is is just how to take these stories that they were told growing up and and i think that really the story you're referring to is an example of that more so because yeah her her mom had 
told her, her adoptive mother had told her time and time again about how she had, as a child in the orphanage, run up to her and clung to her. And I think that that what that required the this Australian adoptee to think about was, okay, if this happened this way, why would that be? Why would a, a, a little three-year-old girl rush up to some stranger and embrace her like that and not want to let go? You know, I suppose one plausible explanation is that it's not true. But the other, the other possibility is that it is true. And there was some reason, some context that, that made that happen uh, and that made her as a little girl respond this way to this strange woman. You know, she'll never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other question of veracity or truth to the information we get from our adoptive parents and from our files, I think is a whole other subject that, you know, begins with simple things like birth dates and relinquishment stories and ends with, you know, fake names and, and you know, stories of how, you know, you came to be at the orphanage, etc. that may or may not be true. Uh, and again, you, you'll, in most cases, you'll never know. And then this enters into the discussion of the duality again, because it's not a good feeling to not know who to believe or what to believe when it comes to your own origin in the world. I guess on the flip side of that, I mean, as I was watching a lot of interviews and then I was also well, watching the films and I was also thinking about this interview and like, how does this relate to family separation? I thought a lot about choice in terms of adoption and like, because so much of what we talked about before in this podcast series is like, oh, like you don't get a choice about who your family is. Oh, like family is just this thing that you have. It's important just because it is important. And a lot of like the difficult questions about belonging and things like that are kind of circumvented with this you know notion of family like oh you just have it it's there this is where you come from like don't have to ask any questions about it it's just what it is but in this case uh with you know this choice comes into play and this choice of you know who chooses what family and also i guess in terms of what you just mentioned who chooses what to believe i guess things like that these all kind of become very very complicated as you say in terms of the duality so i was just wondering like what you thought about choice as a concept here and i think choice is i I, i've never really used that word to describe one really important aspect i think of the adoptee experience but but i think it's a good word for it you know for most people, uh, self-identity is is completely or deeply, at least, rooted in their family stories. You know, for myself, I've never, as an adoptee, I've never felt part of my own family stories. You know, we're talking about generations going back to early American colonies and war heroes and preachers and farmers and philanderers and drunks and crazy uncles, you know? Uh, yeah, those stories are cool, and, and I guess I feel some connection to them, but the truth is, is is that is that my adoptive family stories do not explain how I came to exist in the world. They're largely irrelevant to my own life experiences as a child, and as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a young adult, to my decades of living and working in a, you know, a predominantly uh, white society and profession. So my face in the mirror, you know, which is the face of a 60-year-old Korean man, bears no resemblance to anybody I know. Uh, and I don't know the names of my biological parents or whether they're alive or dead. I'll never know their stories, how I came to exist in the world. And for most of my life, I could not escape this feeling that I came from nowhere. 
And while I really didn't have a vocabulary to fully describe this kind of alienation, you know, I've, I've finally come to the point where I am able to articulate this as feeling like I'm on an island. And so from a young child, I read voraciously. And what I understand about that now is that is that I read in order to try to find a basis for inventing my identity because I had no family stories that were relevant to that. So yeah, I, I mean, call that a choice. I mean, I, I basically have spent a life not having much of a, a self-identity when it comes to origin. And so I have to choose. And so do I choose that, that I'm a Korean American, even though I've, I've, I could, I could list the number of Korean Americans that I've had a friendship with on one hand uh, in my entire life? Do I think of myself as Korean? Even though when I go to Korea, I feel so completely disconnected from Korean culture that I'm absolutely sure that I can't identify as Korean. So what do I what do I choose to identify with? And what I've chosen at this point in my life to identify with is a family and a community of intercountry and Korean adoptees with which I share the most life experience. Listeners can't see, but I can see all of the books on your shelf behind you. But also as someone who has been through, like similarly, I guess, while I was growing up, I also read a lot too for the same reasons that I'm sure a lot of voracious readers read a lot is to kind of figure out yourself. Like you don't know where you fit in. And I think this is especially true for people. And I mean, I don't even mean to like begin to compare, but I guess like I moved a lot growing up. So for me, like being dislocated Mm -hmm. in that way made me want to read a lot because that was the one way I could kind of center myself. But just for a quick fun question, I guess, do you have any pivotal books in your life that you'd like to share? Yeah, I I probably, um, probably the book that resonated most with the theme that we've been talking about has been uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany by uh, John Irving. Are you familiar with No, I'm not. With that book? So basically it's about the main character decides what his purpose in the world is. He doesn't really know. Uh, he wasn't born knowing. He doesn't get a, get a lot of help in knowing what that purpose is. He decides that his purpose in the world is informed by him. Uh, it's self-determined, and uh, yeah, I, I to me to me that's a that's a very resonant theme. Mm-hmm. And I guess now, and maybe we should have started this started with this, but talking about like historical context, just for you know listeners who are not very clear, and also I myself am not even that you know aware of other than what I you know read recently about the situation for adoptees in relation to the Korean War. And I guess one really interesting thing for me was I was like, how does this connect to family separation? It's like so obviously connected when you do even just a little bit of research the korean war created situations where families had to give up their children or there's also the gi situation with um mixed race children and things like that but i'm obviously not at all any expert so i was just wondering well you know there have been over 60 years of adoption out of korea so um how much of that is somehow tied to the korean conflict certainly the first years were my understanding and the the highest figures that i've seen indicate that at the end of the war there were some two million infants and children who had somehow become separated from their families of origin. So somehow separated could encompass truly orphaned, meaning their parents were dead, but it could also encompass all kinds of other things, simply the chaos and fog of war, poverty and the inability to to care for for as many children as a family might have had. 
there was even real problems with the front line moving around so much over the course of the particularly the last year of the war that and every time the front line moved there would be a lot of displaced children and in fact both the North Korean as well as the South Korean governments or military would do sweeps to round up these displaced children. And in North Korea, uh, you have to presume that some of those children were the children of South Korean families and vice versa. So there was that problem. I think that the origin of adoption out of South Korea, though, is very, very specifically tied to the children of UN GIs, particularly American GIs, because they were there in the greatest number. And they were stationed in camps. The camps were surrounded by communities. Communities had not only sex workers, but also just, you know, lots and lots of people who needed to do whatever they needed to do to survive. And and so a lot of children came out of the GI presence there in, in South Korea. And unfortunately, the Korean government was left looking for a solution for all of those GIs. And uh, they appealed to the governments of some of the countries that had had soldiers stationed there. And uh, and those governments, in turn, passed laws, uh, including the U.S., passed legislation to allow adoption out of South Korea into U.S. families. Initially, just for uh, the biracial children, the mixed-race children uh, of GIs, but very quickly of children who were probably not of mixed race, but were probably full Korean. Mm-hmm. Could you speak a little bit to the stigma in terms of adoptees uh, in Korea versus in elsewhere, the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, at that time, obviously awful, but is it changed at all since then? Or given that Korea is a very homogenous country for those who are unfamiliar with the situation, but obviously the situation there, that's the one reason like that they created this legislation in the first place. But has that changed at all, the stigma, or is it still pretty? So the stigma that, that I'm sure you're referring to in Korea has to do with not for adoptee, not against adoptees, but in terms of people without parents, so children without parents. Mm-hmm. So obviously, well, let, let me let me put it this way. Isn't, it, uh, isn't there a stigma for both? I feel like and this is just my, you know, uninformed, I don't know, idea, yeah. but perception of the situation. But I feel like Korean culture is just, you know, if it's not like the perfect, not perfect, but, you know, typical nuclear family, then it's just not, you know, socially acceptable. Like, I feel like that's just true in general, whether it's like single mom or any kind of aberration, like difference from that is seen as just not as good. So my understanding of this, and you may know more about this than I do, but being as, as how all of my knowledge is book acquired or interview acquired, so and I have very, very little personal connection to Korean culture. But my understanding in all of this is that the Confucian culture in Korea has a great deal to do with stigma against both orphanage residents, orphanage kids, as well as adoption. So the kids in the orphanage are the product of people, of families that were, that had behaved shamefully or were incapable of taking care of them uh, is the presumption. And so the children are, as, as a product of that bloodline, are less than, and so therefore not desirable for adoption in Korea. And in fact, until recently, there was 
negligible adoption in, in South Korea. And in, even today, there are fewer than a couple of thousand adoptions in all of South Korea on any given year. And so the, uh, so the vast majority of adoptions out of, of, of the children in Korean orphanages are to other countries. So where there is no such uh, stigma for adoption, or at least not to that, not anything close to that level, you know. So I think the other issue, though, that we're sort of, we haven't really addressed in this is the issue of child abandonment or infant abandonment in Korea. I mean, the vast majority of the children who grow up in orphanages to be adopted or not, and and by the way, the vast majority of them are not adopted, meaning 80, 90 percent of them are not adopted. But the the most of these children end up in orphanages under a blanket sort of description of having been abandoned or relinquished, but more frequently abandoned. And especially in the early days of, of all of this, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a tremendous amount of abandonment of children and infants at police stations and orphanages and hospitals and city hall, etc. So the real question is, why were these children being abandoned. And I think some discussion has to be given to whether or not it is tied to how citizens are defined in Korea, in South Korea. I'm sure you're familiar with this whole notion of right of blood in Mm. South Korea. And so if you do not have a father who claims you in South Korea, you're not a Korean citizen, even if you were born in Korea. And so my understanding is that the only way to work around that is to orphan the child, to abandon the child, to make that child homeless or stateless. And then suddenly there's a workaround wherein this child can be a Korean citizen and age out of the orphanage as a Korean citizen. And that this route is preferable to many single mothers because if they keep the child and the father never acknowledges or claims paternity, then that child will have no right and access to services and education and employment things like that as a Korean citizen. Is this still active today or is this, I know that that's just how the traditionally it has been. Is that still like an active law today? Well, first of all, it was, it was completely active in my understanding until 1998, Mm -hmm. which is the bulk of the Korean adoptions, some 180,000 to 200,000 Korean adoptions. So most of those occurred during the eighties and nineties. Secondly, my understanding is that Korean citizenship was not, and still is not, not conferred simply by being born within Korean territory, that you must have a right of blood claim to citizenship. Yeah, I didn't know about, I mean, I knew like that existed before. I wasn't, you know, aware that that was still very much active and present in the South Korea today. One thing that I also noticed while watching a lot of the interviews was that it is also like largely majority women adoptees, right? Because girls were not favorable, right? Was there something about that that you could speak more to? Well, it's actually a little trickier than that. The The balance of, of gender in the adoptions is not as lopsided as you might think. It's It was really more like 60-40 oh, okay. uh, in favor of what, girls. Uh, and in fact... For those families that would adopt more than one child, one of those children was was virtually guaranteed to be 
a boy just because they were given preference for that. So, but I think what you're seeing actually is in terms of the project side by side and the fact that it's in terms of the adoptees, it's probably 70, 30 women to men is that culturally in the adoptive countries, it's just less appealing for the men to go on camera and discuss these life experiences. Mm -hmm. And do adoptees, orphans, do they have to go to the military too? Or I mean, not adoptees because, you know, you would have a different citizenship. But for those who age out, do they still go to the military? My understanding is that the aged out Korean men are given a waiver on military service. But when I first heard that, I thought, wow, well, that's kind of nice, actually. But the truth is, and it's as it's been described to me by young men who have aged out of orphanages in Korea, that it's not a nice thing at all. And in fact, it is enormously prejudicial against them. Essentially, not having that military experience in their background makes it very, very difficult for them to get jobs, uh, makes it very difficult for them to be socially accepted, etc. And in fact, they believe, people who have aged out believe that they're simply not wanted in the military because they're not of sufficient character coming out of an orphanage. Yeah, that's yeah, just one of those other things that I and I guess that's a pretty good segue into the next part of this interview, which is um, about your experience with Korea. But yeah, that was one of the things that I just, you know, really, I liked a lot of Korea while I was there for two years, but I also really disliked these kind of super hierarchical, traditional, like if you didn't go to the military, you know, you're not part of this system. And therefore, like you're completely like you're either in or you're out is kind of how it felt. And obviously, whether you're an adoptee or Korean American, you're just kind of in this ambiguous space. But I mean, I don't have to live in Korea, so it's different, right? If I'm aged out of an orphanage, I'd have to live with that and those consequences mm-hmm. daily. So, mm-hmm. And you wrote me a little essay for Disoriented, the blog that I mentioned in the pilot episode mm-hmm. of this podcast. Do you? Is it okay if I read part of it? Or Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. So, And this is 100% live. The piece is not out yet, so it probably will be online eventually. But for now, this is just basically a live editing session or feedback session, I guess. But I don't think there's much to fix, though. It's really good. So I just wanted to read this part that I really liked. It's a paragraph from Glenn's piece. It's called Wanting to Love Korea. Most of us want to love Korea. It's truly awesome that every there, everybody there looks like us, but mainly because we want to love the fact that we are Korean despite the circumstances into which we were born. Circumstances that variously included war, economic and social disaster, extreme poverty, hunger, untimely death, shame, rape, racial bigotry, social stigma, forced and coerced relinquishments of infants and children, abandonment and family dysfunction, to name a few, despite many of us being told that Korea would have killed us hated us or disadvantaged us for life had we remained in Korea. Despite prejudice against many of us in our white adoptive communities, making us ashamed of our race and our Korean facial features, despite all of this, we want to love Korea, in large part because we want to like ourselves. I really like this. The consistent theme here is just, you know, I'm not an adoptee at all, but so much of this is also how I felt while I was in Korea. Well, so much of it was what I felt in Korea, and actually part of it clearly is not, because for me, I was able to anchor my experience in Korea with... I went to Korea in fourth grade for one summer. That was like the only experience I had with Korea my whole life before going back as an adult. I mean, it was just one summer, but it was very like good summer, I guess, in vague ways. I don't really remember what happened, but I just remember it was good. So that kind of anchored me during the whole time and 
you know, anything that I kind of went up against that I didn't like, as I expressed earlier, um, I had that kind of solace there, whereas, you know, not everybody has that. So what was it like for you returning to Korea for the first time? I I, I visited Korea seven or eight times uh, the first time in uh, 2004, and it was... It was an overwhelming experience, to say the least. First of all, I've never been around a lot of Koreans. I've never been around a few Koreans. So to be in a country and a a place where everybody is ethnically Korean was quite overwhelming and and was a really wonderful experience. But very, very quickly, you know, the barriers of culture and language and, and all of those things and just not knowing anybody, those are things that are hard to overcome. I know that even for, like, for instance, I have friends that, that go back to visit Korea because they want to visit their biological family. They've, they've been reunited with their biological family. They go back back occasionally to visit them. And it's a big family reunion every time they go back. And it's, and it's filled with a great deal of joy and warmth and love and, and all of those things. And without that aspect of it, you're really just a tourist. Uh, at least I was. And I, in my in my handful of visits there, have not found a way to, to really overcome that feeling. I still am very uncomfortable there. I find it very difficult to do the all of the things that any American tourist is going to have trouble doing. Uh, so yeah, I it is a discouraging process in one sense, but at the same time, I keep going back. And I think I keep going back because every time I go back, I think maybe something different will happen. Maybe I will make a connection this time and experience a connection that I have not felt uh, up till now. And uh, and I'm sure that I'll do that for the rest of my life. Mm, I think that I relate to that, too, in terms of while I was there for two years. And part of the reason I stayed for the second year was you expect there to be some kind of revelation that just pops up while you're, you know, like maybe one day while I'm walking down this street, I'll have some kind of recollection of this thing or feel something that ties me to this larger country and history and I kind of like searched for that the whole time like I was in Korea like I do a lot of journaling and writing photography things like that and it just be like oh like maybe this is the place where I'll see something or feel something but I found a lot of that to not be true like I found a lot of it to just be that I have to actually put in the work to research something or to search by interviewing people or talking to people Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't found like it's not like this magical you know like you step in front of Gyeongbokgung Palace and then suddenly like oh I remember like where I come from like it just you know that's just a fantasy that doesn't actually work like that so I think I did resonate with that a lot and I think that what I liked the most about this essay is the idea your word choice with want like I want to love Korea like uh well for me too it's like I don't know you know do I really love Korea but I think that you have to kind of want to if you want to accept part of yourself and I guess just to clarify and to kind of dig into that word choice a little bit do you think that you quote-unquote need to love Korea to feel like you belong or because you actually didn't really think about Korea for most of your life right so like it's not Mm -hmm. needed right it's just you want to was that deliberate on your end yes i i want to love korea i i want to have a connection with it do i do i need it i i think to to some degree yeah i i i think that for me to feel 
more authentically Korean, more organically Korean, and not just this costume I put on or this this act I do when I go to a Korean restaurant or go to Korea itself and walk around. I, I don't know. To make that more real and more organic, I think I need to, to make more of a connection to it. And if I never, if that never happens, then I, I think that I will always feel less Korean than I would have. Yeah, I'm just trying to think back through my experiences in Korea, too. And it's really interesting, especially because for me, it's like I could pass. Well, after I like conform to the typical hairstyle and clothes and whatever, then I could um, pass as like at a restaurant or like in these basic scenarios, I could pass as Korean. And those were some of those moments where I felt like, you know, you belong somewhere because they didn't ask me anything like any clarifying questions and that's like like a really magical moment but at the same time you also kind of know that it's a lie i think some of my uh non-asian friends in my program they'd say like oh do you kind of feel like you're putting on a costume or like in disguise or something and i think for me that answer was yes and no i could pass but you know it's not real but at the same time i don't know if it's 100 percent false either but um that's just me rambling about that <laughs> but you, you, you know I, I i think though that that's why when i've talked to korean americans about this project and not just korean americans but immigrants from a lot of different countries uh you know i think that the issues of alienation and assimilation are so present in the side-by-side -side project and i think that they are very resonant themes for many many immigrants now i i think that as a korean adoptee I, I wish that I even had more of a connection to Korean Americans, which I do not. I don't feel like I can even pass as a Korean American. Um, I don't feel like I have enough grasp of the culture or, or language or anything like that. To, to and, and in fact, every Korean American I've ever met, I feel like I disappoint, you know, when they find out how little Koreanness I possess. So I don't know. I have a long way to go. It's not making that journey, though, in terms of being, becoming more Korean is less important to me, though, than being comfortable with exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was the transformative result of not only, you know, my time before the Side-by-Side -side Project, but throughout the Side-by-Side -side Project is, is I have reached a point in life where I am more comfortable with who I am and more open acknowledgement and more affirmation for who I am than I've ever been in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Also, you said that, so you have children, right? Yes. Oh, okay. So just to kind of like wrap things up, in terms of your own children, do you kind of introduce Korea to them or is it just kind of a nebulous concept? You know, like, do you try to actively impart some of that or? Well, I, I, have, I have one stepdaughter and she lives in New York City and she has been actively sort of interested in this pro project all the, all the way along. She's not Korean, but, uh, and my wife is not Korean, but frankly, they probably had more to do with me embarking on this journey than any Korean person I know. Mm -hmm. And one question that we usually kind of ask at the end is, um, well, I guess there's two final questions, but the first one is, after all of this that you've gone through, like, has your understanding of family changed at all? Very difficult question, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to ask that. Um, for myself personally, I wish I could say that my sort of relationship with family, whether that's my adoptive family or my family of origin, you know, I, I wish I could say that, that my thoughts about all of that were were different, but I don't think they are. But when it comes to the people that I met interviewing for the project, 
project for Side by Side, I, I just... I can't describe to you how varied the experiences of these adult adoptees have been when it comes to bonding with their adoptive families. Nor can I describe you, to you the variations of attempting to reunite with families of origin and how that's gone. There is no single story even close to it. There's no pattern. There's no similarity, golden thread, nothing. These experiences are enormously diverse, just as families are enormously diverse. And so, yeah, I didn't learn much in terms of being able to create or imagine relationships between all of these 100 stories. Mm-hmm. And the last question that we usually ask is, what is one thing that you wish people knew about the South Korean adoptee situation? And is there anything, this is also like an active situation. It's not like something that's, you know, over. Um, is there anything that people can do, listeners can do to help out or learn more? Well, I wish two things. One is I wish that there was more adoption domestically in South Korea, far more. I wish that more children in orphanages did not age out without ever having the opportunity even to be adopted by a family in Korea or elsewhere. The vast majority of children in orphanages in Korea are not eligible for adoption because they have not been formally relinquished by their biological parents or parent. And I think that the the idea of anybody aging out of an orphanage is tragic beyond words and any policy that makes that continue to happen is bad policy. Mm-hmm. Well, and is there anything else you'd like to add just in general? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the real uh, message of the Side by Side project is is that you have to hear people's stories to really have an understanding for history, to have an understanding of, of things that happen in the world. Without human stories, there is no empathy. There is no real understanding. And that's why we did this. We, we felt very, very strongly that given the opportunity for adult adoptees to tell a side of intercountry adoption that can only be told by adult adoptees, that that would make a difference for not only for people, but for the narrative that surrounds uh, intercountry adoption. Mm -hmm. What I liked a lot about the little blurb on the website is that uh, and I have it up here so I can read it, but it says, there are 100 stories in this video installation. We'd like to think, of course, that you'll watch every minute of every one of them. We know what each story required of the teller in human cost, in the emotional toll of remembering love and loss, in the spontaneous and sometimes searing revelations of the moment. I really like that because in a world where there's so much, there's so many documentaries, so many stories, so many, uh, so much media bombarding us that remembering that all of these things are not created equally, I think, is important in terms of figuring out what we prioritize to listen to and to give our valuable time, I guess, to respecting. So it's so obvious that each story requires something, not just for me to, because it's always, oh, I don't have enough time. But the person who told the story also had to pay a price in that sense. So definitely check out the Side by Side project. You said that in 20... Can can I throw one more thing in there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, in the US, there are about a million foreign-born or Korean-born Koreans. Mm-hmm. There are 110,000 Korean adoptees. That makes us more than 10% of the foreign-born Korean population. And foreign-born is just anywhere, right? Yeah, but most of those are Korean-born, mm-hmm. obviously. 
but but we're 10 percent over 10 percent of that number yeah that's definitely good to know puts a lot into perspective and you also said in 2020 side by side will be released as an audible yes yes Yes, audible books uh will be uh releasing as about a four-hour program on audible and uh so uh we're looking forward to that we're working on it now Mm -hmm. and do you have any other things you'd like to plug for where we can see more or is that the main project well we we keep a running list of all upcoming events and screenings on the website so make sure to check that out and uh and if if you want to see a screening of side by side come to your neck of the woods just get in touch with us and uh we'll try to make that happen awesome sounds great well thank you so much glenn well thank you appreciate it Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Divided Families Podcast with Glenn Morey. On a personal level, I really resonated with this conversation and learned so much about an issue I knew very little about. But if there's one thing that really stuck with me and I'm still trying to process, it's this idea of closure, which I feel like so many families and organizations like the Red Cross and and governments are trying to realize and achieve when it comes to family separation. But this conversation with Glenn, I think, made me think about what closure really means and how it may be different for each person. So, for example, just going back to your birthplace or just reuniting with your birth family or loved ones you haven't seen in decades, that might mean a final, complete closure for some people but it might be part of a longer process of closure and healing for other people. Whereas some other people from this project, they feel like they've found peace and belonging and closure, even without that part many of us think are essential. So I guess just something to think about as we continue sharing stories and connecting stories through this podcast. If you're interested, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media platforms at Divided Families Podcast. Thanks so much to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music. And see you next time on the Divide Families podcast. Thanks.